Firstly, Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold unto sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I, I beg your pardon, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. If I could interrupt, I thought that sounds like Paul's not accepting responsibility for his thoughts and actions, but we know that's not the case. He's more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Chapter 8, verses 1 through to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit 
is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We're working through a series, as you know, on things which I consider foundational. You've really got to have them in your armoury to be able to live a full Christian life. And last week we were looking at this issue of the righteousness of Christ or justification by faith, uh, being put right by grace, only by the mercy of God. Uh, we contribute nothing to that save receive it by faith. Um, that's part of salvation. It's the foundation of salvation it's not all of salvation. And the experiential stuff that you, you ask about is, well, you know, what, do, what do you do when you're aware of that incredible weakness and the strength of temptation, though you be a Christian? How do you explain that? This passage does. This passage is part of a, a three-chapter section, which we're not going to deal with all three chapters. But I encourage you to go back and read these chapters in Romans 6, 7 and 8, they're all about this topic of what's called sanctification. Uh, and that's the foundation of faith too. As, well, we're up to number three. As well, it's the foundation of faith uh, as we look at this passage. We're looking mostly today at just the passage 7.14 through to 8.11. Uh, we're going to bounce through. There's so much there. But just to take you back, I remember years ago when I was a pastor in the country, um, I had the delight of uh, seeing a friend who I trained in um, uh, athletics and pre-season pre training for the local footy club. He's a terrific athlete, ended up playing professional basketball down here at one stage. Um, and uh, we'd been running all the way through a summer trying to get him ready for uh, trials and... Um, and finally, he, due to the witness of a young Christian girl who he'd asked out, and she had refused him <laughs> because she uh, was a, a Christian and she didn't go out with non-Christian blokes. He was so stunned by that that he decided to find out and he asked me what on earth this Christian thing was if it made girls behave so strangely. And Because uh, he was a bit of a heartthrob. And, and, uh, and uh, I remember at the moment when we finally got to that point and we're sitting at my kitchen table and he's about to receive Christ or at least I think God is strongly at work in his life and he's about to pray. And I said, let's bow our heads and you just talk to God as uh, you, know, you talk to a friend. And, and he said, oh, one minute. I said, what's that? Look, I understand why I'm becoming a Christian. I understand what I've got to do. But what's it going to be like once I become a Christian? And, of course, I told him he's going to be incredibly wealthy and get all the girls. <laughs> <laughs> His businesses would all be a success. And, you know, he'd never be troubled by sin. Every day would be closer and sweeter. And... But it's not true, is it? Some people, if you turn on the TV early enough on a Sunday morning, will tell you that. But it's not true. And when you tell people those sweet nothings, eventually down the track, uh, they're bound to be disappointed. My concern is that they're not only going to be disappointed, they're going to lose trust. And they'll chuck the baby out with the bathwater, even though God has not rejected them. <laughs> So understanding sanctification is pretty critical. Understanding this stuff and what we're talking about comes from that last, the first verses that were read for us, which are some of the last verses out of Romans 6. 
Um, the second last one is a critical one. Paul says, but now you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. That's the redemption we are talking about last week. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, after that, the natural consequence, eternal life. But here it is. Here's the description. And we've got this verse further down your little note sheet here if you want to find it. Now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's its end. It is this fruit. Sanctification is not the foundation of your status with God. Your performance, your holiness, your record has nothing to do with your security in Jesus Christ. That was what we were looking at last week. Absolutely nothing. You get sanctification mixed up with justification. You get your foundation mixed up with the fruit. You'll lead a tortured Christian life. In fact, you'll probably end up chucking it in at some stage. It's critical that we understand this. Now, Paul had been criticised by those who'd heard his gospel. And we can read it right through the book. He'd been criticised as selling the gospel too cheaply. Surely we've got to do something too. Surely we've got to keep the law. Surely we've got to, we've got to, we've got to. And Paul repeatedly says, we've got to do nothing but trust. That's the way through to the foundation, which is justification. And people are always concerned that if you offer grace freely, that it will lead to lawlessness. People will abuse this grace system. They'll think that they can get away with murder. Some people will put it like there's no nerve from the justification muscles group through to the sanctification muscle group in Paul's gospel. But Paul refuses to bring back the law. He refuses to make Christians insecure to get a bit of obedience out of them. He refuses to dangle the threat of the removal of salvation over their heads, lest they start mucking up. He wants us to trust in our justification through grace, the work of Christ and our reception of it as the basis. But then he is assuming all the way through, if we'd only been reading carefully, that Christians can sin. A lot of times people read Romans chapter 6, which is a wonderful, victorious chapter, that sin shall no longer be master over you. He says that again and again. Consider yourself dead to sin. Live the victory. That people, when they come to Romans 7... And they read all this despondent stuff, they, they can't put it together. How can this be true of the same person, these, both these things? But the very fact is that in Romans 6, Paul has deliberately encouraged them to not give in to sin. He encourages them to make a decision continually against sin or the flesh. Now, he wouldn't need to tell them that if once you were saved, you were automatically sanctified and you couldn't sin. The very fact that Paul tells people to choose for the Spirit, for sanctification, means that sin is still a live possibility for the Christian. They've still got to resist sin until the day we go. So Paul's interest here is how does the gospel affect our state? Last week we were looking at how does the gospel affect our standing, our foundation. But now how does it expect our, affect our experience, this gospel of grace? There are false models out there. The first one I've called is the Lutheran lazy boy model. <laughs> it's um, not really to mock Luther, Luther or anyone. A Luther wouldn't have agreed with this. But some forms of Lutheranism over the, con over the years have tended towards antinomianism. That is a lawlessness. The idea that you can relax. You've got your ticket to heaven. Just sit back in the recliner and you know, just rock until Jesus comes. 
They'll look after it. Uh, And it almost ends up condoning sin. We sort of indulge ourselves in the fact that we're still sinners. And some of the things that Luther himself said are pretty scandalous, but he didn't say them for this reason. He's trying to get people to trust their justification. A second model, the complete opposite, uh, sort of is the high plateau model. And you come across Christians like this sometimes. They sort of live as if they're on this plateau where you can look down at the poor struggling saints who are trying to get up to the plateau, but you've sort of arrived and sin's no longer a hassle. It doesn't bother you anymore. You're not tempted like mere mortals. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you meet people like that. I've had a, I met a man one, t- one time who told me that he hadn't sinned for two years. I felt he was a dangerous person. <laughs> I would have liked five minutes with his children. That's a, an old view that used to come around uh, in my parents' day. They used to call it entire sanctification. Uh, the Keswick movement tended to preach this. Some brands of Wesleyanism preach this. It's really Arminianism, named after a heretic called Arminius. And then there's Model 3, which takes Arminianism even a step further, which I've called the cosmic Christian. So not only are we defeat, have we defeated sin... We're not living on the plateau, we're living in the cosmos. Heaven has come to us. Hasn't it come to you? I don't get sick. You met people like that? If only we had enough faith, we'd be able to fly. That's an extreme version. But it's the same idea that we can have heaven now. I wonder what waits in heaven then. And a lot of the televangelists, so-called, preach this nonsense. I'm sorry, but it is complete nonsense. The idea that only you had more faith, bigger belief, you'd be able to bring down more blessing from the menu of heaven. Or the only reason why you aren't wealthy or healthy or married to the best girl in town, it's because you lack faith. That's again centering salvation on something we're doing rather than what Christ has done. And so we have here a a spectrum, really, of views of sanctification which go from resignation up one end, that uh, we, well, sorry, your end, resignation through to complete delusion, denial in the middle. Are we stuck on that spectrum? Have we got to choose from that spectrum? Paul says no. There's not only model for salvation and grace, there's model for sanctification. And Paul speaks, as we said before, that sanctification is the fruit of our salvation. It's never the foundation. And so we jump into 7.14 to the end of the chapter, chapter 7. Now, I'm not going to take a long time to do this, But we need to know how to drive these passages so we can understand what's going on in our lives, make sense of all this confusion, not just leave it to God and hope for the best. Paul begins in this chapter, in this section, he's actually been not talking about sanctification, he's been talking about having an argument about the goodness of the law, the Old Testament law. But then he begins in verse 15, he says, For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You know, it's amazing if if, uh, a moment ago when we have that little period where you're encouraged to shake hands beside you and have a chat to people, if you turn to the person beside them and said, Do you know, I can't do the right thing even though I want to do it and... uh, If you're honest about it, I reckon they'd hurry up and leave and volunteer to be on the kitchen roster. (laughs) Uh, But Paul puts it that starkly. He is adamant. He is speaking about himself. In verse 14, going back one, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I think that's wonderful that the Apostle Paul 
was not on the plateau. The Apostle Paul said, this is something we all experience, isn't it? He, the Apostle, surely he was on the plateau. Surely he could look down on the mere amateurs that were trying to struggle up the hill of holiness. But no, he says, we know this, I know this. He pulls out of the we and into the I in verse 15. The law of spiritual, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Now many people look at that verse and they go, hold on, I thought we were free from sin. And Paul is being deliberately stark. He loves to highlight the tension as we saw it last week. In fact, we've got to realise that most Christian truths are tension truths. The nature of heresy is when we lose part of the tension. And that's when you get error in the Christian life. It's a tension. The two, Christ has two natures. He's both and, human and divine. There is a tension here. We're both sinners and being sanctified. There was a tension last week. Grace is totally free and yet it's been paid for. There's always tension in good truth. Paul begins, and you notice that the tenses all the way through this passage, people were so shocked by that statement that some commentators thought, surely he can't be talking about himself. This must be Paul before he became a Christian. I just don't think that holds. Right the way through this passage, nine times we have strong verbs in this little passage. And they're all in, guess which tense? The present tense. And we'll look at other things that indicate that he's speaking about himself quite deliberately. He's putting the tension out there quite starkly. And if we lose it at this point, we miss his brilliance of the point he's making. First of all, he says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He sort of has those actions which I'm sure you can identify with where you, something comes out of your mouth or you do something or you're under pressure and you respond and you go, where did that come from? I wasn't planning to get up this morning to say that. Yeah, I had a quiet time before I went to work. I never thought I'd feel those things. And it feels quite alien. In verse 16, he says, not only is it about actions, but now if I do not do what I do not want, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the Lord, it's good. So he speaks about even desires and the will are affected. In verse 17 and 18, so it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul sort of knows about himself that there's this impotence in his Christian life. It isn't just a walk in the park victory. If he's frankly honest, he knows that his desires are godly. He would love to please God. But as soon as he resolves to, he flunks. Thank God for Paul's honesty that he is depicting the Christian life as it really is. This is the stuff I needed to tell Phil at the kitchen table. This is what it's going to be like, Phil. For I do not do what the, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. But then, so that's the tension. That on one hand, we are meant to be different, but we're strikingly similar to before what we, what we knew Christ. So this points out something which we've got to take on board. He says repeatedly in this, nothing good dwells with me, in verse 18, that is, in my flesh. Now that's the critical phrase in this whole passage. That Paul is somehow distinguishing between the inner Paul and the superficial Paul. When he's talking about 
flesh, he's talking about Paul unaided, Paul in abstract, Paul, if you just put him under the microscope and you look at what he brings to the table here, that's flesh. It is biased. It is sinful. It is programmed to be perversely against God's direction. That is how we all are, folks. That is where holiness begins. That's the material that God works with. He doesn't work with somehow transform material. Sanctification is not transformation of creaturely material. Sanctification is not some magic where God, as soon as you're saved, changes your molecular or neurological structure somehow so that you no longer have your brain. You've got this new one. That's nonsense. You are stuck with the hardware that you began and entered the kingdom of God with. That's reality. God doesn't transform you to a different plane, a different plateau, and he doesn't change your material. So then Paul says, let's take a closer look at this, verses 21 to 25. And here he starts to say, we've looked at how bad things are, how desperate things are. Now let's, there's some little glimpses of hope here though. As I look closer, he's taking a scientific, in fact he's taking an analytical psychological view of himself here. This is the closest thing in the scriptures you get to a psychology. And here he says in verses 21 to 24, it's really like he's shown us the, the Google Maps and now he's going down to the Google Street View and we're really seeing how things are close up. In verses 21, 20, we read, Now if I do not do what I want... Did I read that right? Now if I do what I do not want, <laughs> it's no longer I who do it, as Les pointed out, but sin that dwells within me. Did you notice that? Paul has suddenly divided himself. There is the I and there is sin that dwells in me. He's not saying, I'm not responsible, sin did it, it wasn't me. No, he's saying, but I know this about myself, and don't you? That there is this I that really wants to do the right thing. But there's this powerful pull that is peripheral. It's no longer the real you. And that's what Paul is saying. You see those critical words? It is no longer I. The old Paul, the unsaved Paul, wouldn't have noticed a difference. He would have been in at heart and soul. Sin, that is. He would have given into temptation and justified himself in that temptation. In fact, you read his testimony in Philippians 3 and 4 to 7, and he says, you know, if I look back at how I performed, as to the law, I was blameless. His conscience didn't trouble him, and he's persecuting the church, throwing people into prison for the name of Christ. He slept well. That's a sinner. They're at peace. They're integrated. But now there's this division in the self. That's a little glimpse of hope's folk. Hope. That's a glimpse that the process of sanctification has begun, that you can separate the real you from the peripheral you, the holy you from the perverse you, I from sin. And so he can start to look at it with confidence. In verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It's like I've set out to sea. I think I'm going to get away from Sin Island. I've set my sails into the wind, and I look around and sin has stowed away with me. It's still there. In verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, the peripheral me, Another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, he's starting to say there's a difference between 
me, the real me, or the law of my mind, or the inner self. That's all the same thing. But then there is the flesh. Then there is my members. And what he's noticing, if you could put it in computer parlance, is that it's the same old hardware, but there's new software. And he's starting to move to a different tune, a different drummer. And he can distinguish that. Yes, we should look clearly as Christians at our sin. And so we should say, yes, I still have the tendency. I can be thoroughly disappointing, even disappointing to myself. But that's not the end of the story. There's glimpses of hope. I'm starting to notice that I and my tendencies are two different sources of influence. How can this be? In fact, Paul comes to the point in verse 24. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's definition of the Christian life, his adjective he uses, wretched. It's another word for frustration. The experience of the genuine Christian, frustration. I hope we mention that when we're following up people from the Billy Graham crusade. What's it going to be like when I'm saved? Oh, I know how to be saved, but what's it going to be like? It will be frustrating. The nature of the Christian life is that it is a struggle between opposing powers that reside right within us. It's not just the powers out there. It's not just a political situation. It's not just society going down the gurgler. It's within us but the fact that there is a fight going on is a state of my genuineness where there is no fight there is no salvation where I struggle shows that there is a new opposing force right within me that kicks against my peripheral self, my perverse self, and my perverse self, my habitual self, my inherited self, my self in Adam, fights against that core self which loves the law of God and loves God and his holiness. That's the nature of the genuine Christian life. How are we going to struggle? How are we going to deal with that? Paul says, verse 25, Two things I want to put against each other in two sentences, he says, in juxtaposition, bang, against each other. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He can rejoice through thanksgiving for the gospel of grace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He still gives thanks. He doesn't say, oh, I've been sold a dud. Oh, well, so that was Christianity. <laughs> No, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Because on the one hand, I thank God for the struggle. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin, and I give thanks for the struggle. That's what he's saying. It's the nature of the beast. Not only that, he goes on now, let's how are we going to resolve this tension? That's part of the good news. It's not the whole of the good news. He hasn't told us the secret to living the sanctified life. Here he goes on in this verse. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just remind you, he's saying, that you are justified by faith, not by frustration. <laughs> you are justified by... The, or No condemnation is a legal term, isn't it? It's what happens in a law court. He says, thank God that God can't point the finger at us despite our pathetic record. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, there is a new paradigm. And this is the first time he has introduced the Holy Spirit. This is a new player in the block that tips the whole equation. The law 
of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this eternal, circular, fail, hope, wish, desire, fail, hope, wish, desire. The circuit breaker is the Holy Spirit who breaks this struggle that brings us the experience of sin and death. For what God has done, what the law, weakened by its flesh, couldn't do, knowing more commandments was never going to make us more holy. I know there are people in the United States that sort of actually take it to the local governor and they, they would think it was a good thing if we could get in every school the Ten Commandments on the wall. And then people would behave better. Paul says, no way. That's not how it works. Law, when it's interpreted by a human being, is taken on board by fleshly people. People who are weak. They can't do it. But God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. We dealt with this last week. He has judged sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What's he talking about? So we walk not according to the law. We don't memorize the law and just hope for it but we walk according to the spirit. How do we walk according to the Spirit? The next three verses tells us how we do that. Verses 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Isn't that true? <clears throat> the, the person who is obsessed with selfishness just automatically thinks about themselves. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You simply cannot have the sense of blessing of God while you're setting your mind on yourself, while you're indisciplined, while you never call the flesh to account, while you never recognize it. Forget experiencing the blessing of God. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on, on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't even submit to God's Lord. Indeed, it can't. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And now we come to the crunch, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh. Your primary paradigm that defines you is not your history or your biology, spiritually speaking. It's not what you were born with. But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. That's the new reality. You still have the flesh. He's just spent half a chapter telling you how real that is. But that's not your primary reality. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now that's worth reminding yourselves of when those misguided Christians meet you on train stations or in conferences and ask you if you're spirit-filled. And usually the implication is that they have the Spirit and you don't. You only believe in Jesus. Paul points out here, that can't be right. A real Christian has the Spirit. You wouldn't have known Christ for who he was. You wouldn't have accepted his salvation without the Spirit. He comes in the form of the Spirit and all his blessings are given to us through the Spirit. But that's not the point I want to dwell in. The point I want to dwell on here is verse 10. But if Christ is in you, you know, the way that the Christ lives in us is through the Spirit. It's just another way of talking. It's not that the Spirit and Christ are the same piece and persons, but the way Christ dwells in us is through the Holy Spirit. Uh, although the body is dead because of sin, let's face it, we bring nothing to the sanctification table. The body is dead. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Did you notice that little phrase? The spirit is life because of righteousness. Some old versions used to translate that your spirit is alive because of righteousness. But that would be to, to contradict what he's just said. We bring nothing to the table to make us holy. 
It's not that somehow our physicality is fallen, but our spirits never fell. That would be something that maybe Plato might have written, but not Paul. What Paul is saying here is, if we have any power to defeat sin, then it's an alien power. It's the spirit of Christ that is the source of our holiness. It's not my resolve. It's not my psychology. It's not my education. It's not the family I grew up in. It's not my training. It's not my New Year's resolution. It's the spirit of Christ. And that's all. If you want to thank anyone for your progression in the Christian life, you thank the Spirit. And the Spirit is in you. Why? Because of righteousness. Because of last week. Because you have been justified by faith. He can come in and reside. Because you are declared righteous, he can come in and help your record start to catch up to the declaration. You can now be what you are. You can start to become righteous as an adjective because you are righteous. You live in the standing of righteousness through the work of Christ. On the foundation of what Christ has done, you can now experience righteousness. The spirit of him will be doing that. It's an alien, Just as sin is alien to the eye, so is the spirit. So our role, if we are to be really spiritual people, holy people, if, we're to, if you really want to grow in holiness and start to progress in the Christian life... What you have to do is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You have to become soft and supple to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit nudges you about that thought, you agree with him. And you'll stay in fellowship with him. So when the Holy Spirit asks you to do something selfless, Give up time to visit someone who you wouldn't rather be with. Some family member who's going to cost you a lot of stress. You do it. Because you're setting your mind on the unction, the nudging of the spirit. Sure, some of those things might be coming from your own uh, overactive conscience. But eventually you'll start to sort out over time the unctions of the spirit, the nudgings of the spirit the influence of the Holy Spirit from just what is of you and what is something you've picked up along the way of life. That's the nature of the Christian life. It is critical. We've been a long way here. So on the one hand, if you're going to understand what God is doing in your life and what the real Christian life is about, first of all, there's enough material there to have a whole conference of despondency. And I, I, I'm not going about to get my scrapbook out and show you. You wouldn't be listening to me if I did. But there are glimpses of hope because you start to notice that you really want to do the right thing and because you feel bad about it, that's a sign that you are being sanctified. And you start to notice that there's a bit of gap between what was compulsive once and what is now what you really want to do. But that's not the end of the story. You don't start inferring that God is putting you in or out of his favour on the basis of your performance. Justification by faith is to be stood on right the way through this process. But in the meantime, you keep on being soft to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You tend to walk with him and after a while your performance will improve oh minusculely <laughs> yeah the day we meet jesus he's not going to go my goodness you're a 90 <laughs> oh boy you're about a 10 we'll notice that we're all 10 percenters but 
progress will be made. It'll be appreciable. Years ago, when I was uh, early married and I was studying at Theological College in the city, um, I was living in this uh, rather rough area of South Brunswick. And um, it wasn't a very safe area. I don't know how many hubcaps I had stolen and uh, you know, the local chemist was stabbed for his till and this sort of thing. It was not a very nice place to live. Um, and there was a lot of uh, sort of psychosis on the streets, if you like. So I was uh, trying to do a lot of... Um, uh, playing a lot of hockey in those days and had to keep fit and do a lot of running. Uh, but it wasn't safe to run at night, and uh, so I used to get up at the crack of dawn and, and go for a jog. And uh, I'd generally run down to Parkville and, and around the green parks there and the hockey grounds and do some work there. One day, I was crack of dawn, the sun was just getting up, and I ran over the uh, little light rail that heads north through Parkville, and, and I was just coming over into uh, this top ground and the hockey, hockey centre, and... and um, there was this park bench over in the distance. And uh, this was a bit of a sacred moment for me, I'll tell you. I'm sharing something pretty sacred here. So. This park bench was there, and as I was running past it and leaving it, I swear I, I heard the park bench bark at me. And uh, I thought, my goodness, that's uh, not good. I better just keep running. But then I looked around, and as I got closer to the park bench, I could see that there was this dog underneath the park bench and he was very angry, he was livid. And as I was running past, he was... And for a minute there, I thought it was a burning bush expert, you know, burning bush, barking bench. But uh, anyway, I, I decided I'd go and tarry hither and uh, see what was happening. When I got up to this dog, I could see it was a, like a, a red setter, you know, that, but it was black, you know, long-haired, lanky, you know, needed to move around. I couldn't work out why it wasn't racing out of me. It was barking at me, but it wasn't racing out of me. And then I got closer and I could see that this dog uh, had been bound to the park bench with electrical wire around its rear quarters and uh, around its neck, and the wire was cutting right into the flesh. I don't know how long it had been there, and its ribs were sticking out. It was all frothing at the mouth, and I thought, my goodness, some, someone's taught this dog a lesson. It was bound to the bench, and it wasn't going anywhere. It was crazy in its frustration. The sort of people that live in our community. Anyway, I went over and uh, I don't know that much about dog psychology, but uh, you know, all I learned about dog psychology was from Lassie reruns. And so I went over and I got near the dog and it's, when I put my hand out, it would go, Rawr! and I thought, oh, this is going to... And finally I thought, now what would they do in Lassie? And I knew that dog language, if you're lying on your back, it's submission. So I got down and lay beside the dog. <laughs> I was hoping the tram wouldn't go past and oh, I'd go... <laughs> And I gradually reached out my hand, and after a few touches, the dog just went, <sighs> and let me touch it. I got into the dog's head by patting it. Finally, that dog allowed me to unwind this yellow electrical wire out from its neck and around its privates. It had been trapped so it couldn't lie down, it couldn't stand up. It was distorted and distended by some enemy. So I thought, well, we've got to do something about that. And I, I ran about five metres away and I called the dog. I said, come on, boy. Guess what happened? Nothing. <laughs> it looked at me through these two eyes and it just looked at me like, hey, mate, you know, I'm bound to the bench. That's all I know. And uh, it was just looking at me, don't ask me to do that, it hurts. I know what I'm capable of. And so I got back and I got a little closer and I said, come on, just, just a step, just a step, come on, give me one. And the dog took one step. Then it looked around and it took another step. <laughs> Suddenly it realised that in real terms, it was free from the burden to which it had been attached. There was a distance between 
itself and its history. And boy, then we began to run. And we ran all the way through Parkville, across a main road. The dog never left my side. Every time I looked down at it, it looked up at me. I won't tell you what it did to my wife's roast chicken when I got home. <laughs> but you know, if I ask myself, did I need a leash? Did I need to scare the dog? Did I need to say, you walk closer, I'm going to tie you back up. I'll throw you away. That's not the gospel. The gospel is focus on the Saviour and you'll be safe. You will get home and blessings abide. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we just thank you this morning that as we sit here, these words that the Apostle wrote, we thank you for his openness and his humility. But Lord, we thank you as we finish this time when the Apostle says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor the heights, nor the depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.